Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Journalist Diane Macedo began her career with Fox News Radio as a guest booker before becoming a reporter and news editor at the Fox News website. In 2011, she joined the Fox Business Network as an anchor during the very popular and long-running radio show, I Miss in the Morning. Then it was on to WCBS-TV, where Diane was named Weekend Morning News Anchor. Up next, ABC News, where she is currently an anchor and correspondent, appearing on Good Morning America, World News Tonight, Nightline, World News Now, and America This Morning. Diane also anchors ABC News Live, where she hosts ABC News Live Update, the breakdown, and covers breaking news and special events. Diane is also an author, a one-time insomniac. Her book, The Sleep Fix, Practical, Proven, and Surprising Solutions for Insomnia, Snoring, Shift Work, and More, is must-reading for those of us who struggle to fall and stay asleep. A mix of hard science and self-help, The Sleep Fix is a practical, user-friendly guide that teaches us how to identify important red flags, how to spot sleep myths, and separate fact from fiction. Apparently, not everyone needs to have eight hours of sleep. Clearly, you're not going to fall asleep during my conversation with this accomplished, classy, creative woman. (laughs) Diane, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Oh, Sandy, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I want to begin, believe it or not, with this fun fact. You also sing. (laughs) I read that you were the lead singer for the musical ensemble Tribeca Rhythm, and that you also performed with the cover band The Good Life, and that you occasionally sing with the studio band The Little Rockers. What's that about? So I, my mother will tell you, I've been singing since I came out of the womb. I used to kind of entertain <laughs> myself as a toddler by waving my arms and legs in the air and singing. Yeah, I don't know. It's just always been something in me. I've never been formally trained or taken taken any lessons or anything like that. But um, but I've just always loved it, and I've learned a lot from the people around me. You know, singing in chorus class and things like that when I was um, in middle school and high school. And then um, when I was in college, I sang in an acapella group at Boston College called the Bostonians and uh, learned a lot, a lot, I think probably most of my singing from being surrounded by them and, and you know, kind of gleaning my, my singing skills from them. Uh, and now it's just something I do for fun. I really enjoy it. I don't uh, formally sing anymore, so I'm not part of a wedding band anymore or any official kind of cover mm-hmm. band. But mm-hmm. I do on occasion still get together, pre-pandemic at least, and uh, and put together a quick show with a few you know friends or old colleagues or whatnot that play instruments and we will occasionally play out and have a bunch of friends come and watch us. So I hope to continue that once uh, once this pandemic is behind us. Well, back in the day, did you ever, no pun intended, entertain being a singer in your professional life? I did. Um, you know, I think like so many teenagers, I you know I imagined myself to be a big star one day performing on a stage, and uh, and I did for a short period of time, you know, think about it for real. But I I think once it became, once I got a little bit older and more mature, I realized that the, I didn't want that life, mm-hmm. and I I I loved news so much that once that started becoming more of a reality it became clear to me that news was where I belonged in terms of my career and singing is what belonged as my hobby. 
that's something that you and I have in common, that um, my career has been spent in news, but in radio. Um, mm-hmm. And my standard line, and people just roll their eyes every time I use it, but I'm going to have it on my tombstone, which is, <laughs> I've, got, I've got a face for radio. And um, <laughs> I, it's such a powerful medium to be able to impart information to people. Take us on your journalistic trajectory. Is that what you majored in when you went to college? I did. I majored in political science and communications uh-huh. with the intention of of going into something in that realm. I wasn't sure that it was going to be journalism specifically. I think more because anything than anything because journalism is so difficult to get into. Um, but I interned at a tiny little news station in Newton, Massachusetts. I was always into current events and things like that. So I thought I would either end up in journalism or maybe in some kind of Washington, D.C. job where I was involved in in policy kind of things, but maybe from a more behind the scenes perspective. Mm -hmm. And when I actually ended up going into news, it was because I wanted to be a writer. And it was actually a boss of mine who encouraged me to consider broadcast. Uh, I used to stay late and shadow uh, the producer who sat next to me when I was a booker in radio. And I asked if I could shadow her and she said, yes. And so I would finish my shift at, you know, about eight or nine o'clock at night. And then I would, um, she would show me how she wrote her one minute scripts to time and, and so on. And so I started writing my own scripts and leaving them for my boss and he would critique Hmm. them and give them back to me. And he eventually said, you know, I know you want to be a writer and your writing is great, but I really think you need to consider broadcast. So from now on, instead of writing these scripts, I want you to record them and send me the sound. Wow. And so I would go into the sound booth after the actual anchor was done and I would record the script that I wrote as if I were the anchor uh-huh. and send my um, and send the audio to this boss, Mitch Davis. And he critiqued would critique my delivery. And he was the first person who put me on air to cover American Idol because I was uh, I was very into it. Hence the singing. And that kind of was the very, very beginning of what after a few years snowballed into what became my broadcast career. So clearly he was your mentor. In a way, yeah. And I was lucky to have some good bosses along the way who uh, who helped mentor me in different ways. You know, Mitch Davis was one, Rufet Kaplan was another, Dan Foreman was another, um, all in different places and different workspaces, but they all kind of helped me along the way. And I've been given a lot of advice throughout the course of my career along the lines of you never admit you don't know and act as if and and so and so on. And I always kind of did the opposite of that. I've always been one to be very quick to admit when I don't know something at work. And I think that's actually helped me because I've had some great bosses that were able to step in and let me know where gaps were missing. Sure. Uh, and and they have. And so I, I do have to credit a lot of where I've ended up to having some really great bosses along the way, both before I got to ABC and since I've arrived there. I had somewhat similar experiences and then experiences that were antithetical to that, that I've oh, worked of for course, a couple yeah. of men. I just men. don't talk about those as much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'll be buried with some of those feelings of being involved with some men who were just lunatics and screamers. And it was just so unsettling. I'm a lot older than you are. And I think that maybe did that have something to do with the time? But it was certainly no mentoring in my neck of the woods. I'm sorry to hear that. And I'm also sorry to report that I did endure a lot of that as well. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't think it was just a sign of the times and, and maybe it, it is, maybe that is, I'm hoping happening less and less now, but I did endure a lot of kind of subtle and overt 
sexism along the way, mm-hmm. ageism along mm-hmm. the way, you name it. You know, I've been literally called a baby, um, not because I was acting like a baby, but because someone was trying to make the point that I had all the time in the world to develop my career. I didn't need to be so ambitious now. Oh, that's um, interesting. Thank you for sharing that, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, you know, this was someone who didn't know my age, but was just going based on their assumption of what I looked like at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I have had jobs where people who were both, uh, junior to me and they probably didn't know it, but younger than I was calling me kiddo. <laughs> uh, and those are just some, you know, a few of the mild examples of, of things that have happened. So yeah. I do, I do sympathize and empathize with that as well. But, um, I like to focus on the positive too, because I have, I do have to credit some of the great bosses right. with, uh, with some of my successes as well. Right. That's not what I think of when I go over my career that's, you know, been fairly extensive. But I mean, those are things that certainly stand out. And you'd like to think we've passed that point, certainly to a large degree, but we're not completely there. What was the transition like for you to go from radio to television? Was it a natural act? Um, yeah, I have to say I didn't, I didn't spend that much time on air in radio because it was pretty shortly after I started doing on-air stuff here and there for radio because I still had to do my regular job. The on-air stuff was just kind of a bonus. Um, And so I didn't do it for very long before I then moved over to foxnews.com where they wanted to kind of make the best of both worlds. And so they turned a, a lot of the stuff I was doing for radio into video stuff so they could use it on the website as well. Uh, so I, I think it's difficult for me to answer that question mm-hmm. in terms of from an on-air perspective, but I really liked, I liked working in radio. I think the medium just conveys a different kind of information and there are certain stories. And I appreciate that more now that I work in television, that there are certain stories that I still want to tell that just don't make for good television because they're not very visual, but visual, but they're still great stories. And so I think it's just, it's a bit of a different medium that sometimes we blend the two and we think of radio as just TV, but without the pictures, but it really is kind of a different art form. And I I think I have a stronger appreciation for it now than maybe people who don't have that background because I I lived it and I was there. Right. So when you moved over to ABC, for example, was that jarring in terms of hours? Were you doing different day parts and, and shifts? And was that hard to hard to incorporate in your life? In the beginning, no, surprisingly. Um, and I say that as someone who swore I would never work a true overnight shift, but I went from working at 3.30 a.m. at Fox Business Network to working at 1.30 a.m. at CBS New York. And those were horrible, horrible hours for me. And I now understand why this is all the case. But at the time, I assumed that an overnight schedule would just be even worse. And it was the opposite. When I started at ABC and I was going in at 10 or 11 p.m. and coming out somewhere between five and six in the morning, I was actually okay. Really? The reason, Yeah. And the reason for that is I'm a natural night owl. And sometimes people think of things like that as some kind of a choice, like you just like to be out late and you like to sleep in or you're lazy. But whether you're a night owl or a morning person or somewhere in between is actually ingrained in your biology, something I learned in researching the book. And so as a natural night owl, for me, going home around five o'clock in the morning was kind of just like a really late night. 
And hmm. so I was still able hmm. to fall asleep and stay asleep for a good decent chunk. So I was, I was getting actually much better sleep than I had in years. So I was getting much better sleep than I did at CBS waking up at one and at Fox waking up at three, because as a night owl, that was much more difficult for me. Once I started doing Good Morning America, then that changed because now I was going in at 10 or 11 p.m., but my day wasn't ending at five or six. It was ending at nine or 10. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I would then, you know, someone would ask me, oh, can you do this 11 a.m. shoot? And of course I would say yes. And so I would, I was kind of saying yes to doing things all over the place, but I wasn't getting to bed on some days I would go home at five on, uh, you know, a.m. And other days I wouldn't get home until 9 a.m. And I was that was really difficult for me to fall asleep during that time. How in God's name did you function? Well, I didn't. <laughs> so I <laughs> broke myself. I started trying all these different kind of sleep tips uh, that, you know, the typical things that you see in, in most articles and TV segments, and none of it worked. On my doctor's advice and at, against my hesitancy, I started taking Ambien. For a while, that worked like magic, and then it stopped working. And that was kind of the wake up moment for me, because when I told my doctor that Ambien wasn't working anymore, she said, you know, you can just up your dosage. But I, I kind of decided right then and there, that was not a path I wanted to yeah, go down. Yeah. So I, that was when I decided that I needed to figure out this sleep thing once and for all, and I needed to find a real solution to it. And so I turned into kind of a sleep nerd. I, I got screened for sleep apnea. I ruled that out first. And then I started reading sleep textbooks and books written by clinicians who treat insomnia rather than some of the more popular sleep books that I had already read and didn't help me. And reading the textbooks and the books written by clinicians, that's where I found my answers. And I was surprised at how quickly these things worked, how doable most of them were, and how different they were to so many of the things that I had seen out there that I was supposed to do. And I, you know, especially given I had solved my sleep issues while working the overnight shift, which was something I just was continuously reading was impossible to do. I just kind of thought, well, why isn't anybody talking about this stuff? Why isn't any talk anybody talking about these solutions that not only fixed my sleep problems, but are shown in research and by clinicians to fix lots of people's sleep problems? And so, you know, fast forward two years and I finally, I just couldn't get it out of my head and I decided I should be the one to put this out there. And so that's when I started my, you know, I had done a lot of research by that point already, but that's when I started doing it kind of more intensively and, and talking to sleep experts. And yeah, a million people work overnight shifts, whether I understand that, but is that not aberrational that here you are? coming home from work at five in the morning or nine in the morning, and then going to sleep during the day. Is there not an imbalance in all of that? You're over here and everybody's over there. Well, there's a lot that there's a lot that's in it. And I think people only think of the biological component, which is huge, but there's a lot more to it, which is why in the sleep fix in my book, I write actually an entire chapter dedicated to the overnight shift because this is a community largely ignored. Yes. by not only your typical sleep tip articles or your typical TV segments, but also the kind of more popular sleep books out there. And even the ones that I did read by clinicians, none of them really addressed what to do on the overnight shift. And when I called a lot of them directly to ask, the answer I got was, 
you know, there's not, there's, you know, that's a tough one. I don't really know because, you know, it's tough. So I, I, that was probably the hardest part of the book to research because I had to seek people out that really specialized in that specifically because nobody else talks about it. Nobody else looks into it. And there's very little research specifically done on overnight shift workers. But the good news is there were some answers and I did find them. And there's now a whole chapter full of real answers (laughs) for people on that shift. Mm -hmm. But, um, in terms of the biology, it's not to say that being able to do the kind of circadian shifting techniques that I talk about in the book that are going to fix everything, um, because there are different schools of thought as to whether you can fully shift or whether certain organs like the liver, for example, always keep time no matter where you are. So let's say when you travel, right, and you have jet lag, there are some schools of thought that the liver continues to stay in your current time zone, even when the rest of your body switches. So I can't, you know, it's, it's beyond my, my purview at this point to say that you can fully shift and undo any of the damage that happens on the overnight shift. But I can say you can undo a lot of it and prevent a lot of it by taking some pretty simple measures and understanding the mechanisms that make your sleep work and that will stop your sleep from happening and how to get around those. And so one example is your light exposure. And, you know, a lot of this chapter and what led me down this road and made me so stubborn and not give up on finding answers was actually thinking about jet lag. Because when you travel, you are in a completely different time zone. And so you are, when you get there, you are trying to fall asleep when your body clock naturally wants you to be awake. And you're trying to be awake when your body clock naturally wants you to be asleep. Anyone who's done any kind of distance traveling understands what that how it works just comes with the territory. It's the same thing that happens when you're doing shift work. And yet when we travel, our body does eventually adjust to the new time zone. Why? Because of when we see light, when we see dark, when we eat, when we exercise, and when we go to sleep and wake up. So my logic was, if we can adjust to jet lag after a while, then we must be able to use those same tools to adjust our body to shift work. And it turns out we can't. So for example, for me, I decided to start with light because I thought that was going to be easy for me to do. And it was going to be very effective given I worked an overnight shift. So I needed to expose myself to light, bright light that is, at the time that I wanted my body to think it was daytime. And I needed to make sure I was being exposed to darkness at a time that I wanted my body to get the memo that it's nighttime. Essentially, if you have a circadian rhythm disorder, the ideal thing to do would be to shift your schedule to your natural body clock's desires, which is what everybody will tell you to do. Hence, they tell you to quit your job if you're a night worker. But for those of us who don't see that as a realistic option, the next (laughs) best solution is to trick your body into thinking you changed your schedule. So for me, putting a bright light therapy lamp in my bathroom when I was getting ready at night convinced my helped to convince my body that it was actually morning. At 10 o'clock at night, you're in your bathroom getting ready, let's say putting on makeup, whatever, and you've got this bright light beaming at you in your bathroom. Yeah. And it's not, it sounds like an assault, but it's not, you know, imagine your e-reader like a Kindle yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, with a little picture frame stand on it that automatically makes it stand up vertically. And I would just have that next to, I have a little shelf on my bathroom that holds my blow dryers and stuff, and I can just put it on there. Or, you know, when, if I'm in the other bathroom, I actually just stack up some toilet paper rolls mm-hmm. and put it on there. And it's just there, shining light in the room while I'm getting ready. But that light, it doesn't, you know, I'm not staring at it or anything like that. Um, it's not in the way. It doesn't take up any extra time. 
But that light is reaching my eyes and it's communicating to my brain, essentially mimicking sunlight and communicating to my brain that it's daytime and it's time to be awake. And this can be helpful not only to shift workers, but anyone who has a tough time waking up in the morning and falling asleep early enough at night to get enough sleep. And that can apply to any night owl, for example, who even has normal work hours may have this problem. And a lot of us go regardless of our chronotype, whether we're morning people or or later oriented, many of us spend the whole day in dim light. We leave our houses, we go directly to the office where we're exposed to maybe 500 lux of, of brightness from our office lights. And then we come home and we turn the lights on in our house and we're again exposed to 500 lux of brightness in our house. And so our body clocks don't know how to tell what time it is. And at that point, it doesn't really matter how early oriented or late oriented you are. You can still have these sort of sleep issues tied to your circadian rhythm because your body clock doesn't really know what time it is. It's not like the old days where we would be out farming or out hunting and gathering. We were out in the sun, which is 100,000 lux of bright light. Mm -hmm. So using a bright light lamp, if you don't have the opportunity to get bright light sunlight in the morning, can really work wonders to help people to wake up more easily and then fall asleep more easily. Because when your wake signals get situated at the right time, it also helps your sleep signals to get situated at the right time. And then you can also piggyback that, add to that contrast by adding more darkness into your evenings, whenever your evenings may actually fall. So Mm. for me, that meant lowering the lights in my office. So rather than using the fluorescent overhead lights, I would turn on a lamp. And I would wear sunglasses when I left to go from one studio to the other. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So that when Mm -hmm. I was outside and when I was commuting home, I wasn't exposed to the sun. Now, for people who drive themselves home, that may not be an option because you can risk falling asleep at the wheel more quickly because you're wearing the sunglasses. So you don't want to do that if you're commuting. But there are other things you can do, including exposing yourself to more bright light in your what is your morning time. But also, you know, lowering your shades at home before you leave so that when you arrive home, your house is dark. Putting blackout shades up in your bedroom. Anything to trick your body into thinking now it's evening time and it's time to go to sleep. And the more you can paint that contrast for your body between the amount of light you get exposed to in the morning and during the daytime and the the less light you get exposed to in sort of the hours before you get ready to go to bed and during the night the easier it is for your body clock to kind of situate on that. And that can help especially shift workers. But like I said, it can help anybody that's having trouble falling asleep and waking up at the right times. And then you can add to that what time you eat, what time you exercise, et cetera. You know, there's an entire, there are several chapters of the book on this. So we're not going to cover it all today. But essentially you get, you can do all of these things that help get your body on a schedule so that your sleep schedule more closely matches your actual life and work schedule. I attended a class run by a sleep expert. It struck me when you were talking about the bathroom light, for example, that he was talking about our bedrooms. And he said, a bedroom has two functions. It's where we sleep and where we have sex. It is not a dining room. It is not a library. And it's not your office. And he was talking about how many of us do this, sit in bed with our iPads, working on our iPads or looking at our phone and that blue light that you referenced, that screws us up pretty magnificently, doesn't it? 
Well, this is the interesting part is when I talk to sleep clinicians and I bring up the blue light thing, it's almost like you can hear them roll their eyes on the other side of the phone. And here's why. It's not that the blue light thing is a myth because our screens do reflect blue light and blue light, just like the bright light is the most, is the most powerful light in the color tones that reflect sunlight. Mm-hmm. And so oh, that mimics sunlight, I should say. And so, our, you know, you do want to avoid blue light in the hours preparing for bed, especially if you have sleep problems. The issue is a lot of people who have insomnia will take that to a degree where they will banish all screens within two hours before bed or three hours before bed or, uh-huh. or whatever it is. Uh-huh. Now on paper, that sounds like a great idea. The problem is a lot of us use screens to unwind. Yes. And yes, screens yes. Mm-hmm. is what allows that, you know, when you sit down on your couch at the end of the day and you relax and you put on your favorite show, there are so many benefits to that moment, that relaxation. You're taking your mind off things. You're no longer an active participant in the thought process. You're just taking in this form of entertainment, et cetera. And for a lot of us, screens are kind of the chief way and the only way we really do that. And so when you take a bunch of people who are already having trouble sleeping because their mind is going a mile a minute when they get into bed and a lot for a lot of people with insomnia, the main reason why they can no longer sleep is because they're worrying about the fact that they're not going to sleep. sleep. Yes. And now you remove all the screens. You just removed the one thing that helped them get their mind off of their problems of the day and the fact that they're worried that they're not going to sleep. And so those worries, it just gives them more time to worry about everything. And those worries are more powerful, very arguably more powerful in harming your sleep than whatever blue light you were going to get from the screen. And so in, in the book, rather than just tell everybody swear off screens within, you know, X hours of bedtime, I try to offer tools to help mitigate the negative impacts of screens. So lowering the brightness level on the screen, lowering the blue light level on the screen. And the other part that the conversation about blue light often ignores is what you're using the screens for, which research, some research is now showing is actually more of a factor in damaging your sleep than the blue light. So if you end up, you know, scrolling Instagram because you got sucked down a rabbit hole and now right. it's two hours past your bedtime and right. you completely ignored you know, your, your sleep signals because you're so sucked into this app, that really has nothing to do with the blue light per se. There's something else happening there. And same for if you read a stressful email before bed, the stress from the email is going to be far worse for your sleep yeah, than the blue the light that's coming sure. through the screen. Right. So there's a lot in the book also on how to mitigate you know, what you're using the screens for and how to and how to reduce that aspect of things. And so one trick that I love, for example, is the grayscale trick, where if you go into your device's color filter setting and you set it to grayscale, it turns everything else functions exactly the same, but it turns the screen black and white. And that makes the whole thing that much less in, enticing and kind of addicting. Mm-hmm. And so for me, for example, I would frequently pick up the phone to do something really quick. And the next thing I knew, it was two hours later, I was still scrolling some random social media site and I hadn't done the thing that I had originally picked up the phone to do. When the phone is in grayscale, that no longer happens to me. Hmm. If I pick up the phone to do something, I do it. And even if I take a quick detour to, oh, let me just check Twitter really quick, or let me just check Instagram really quick. It really is just a quick pit stop and not this thing that sucks me in. And and so that's often... um, that's often put out there as a tip for people with kind of screen addiction, but I find it indirectly then also helps with sleep. 
And so that's just one example of where I wanted to get away from some of the hard black and white do's and don'ts and kind of give people tools to make a better decision as to what their actual problem is and then put tools into place to mitigate the negative impacts without taking a sledgehammer to something that might need a scalpel instead. Talk to me about this eight hours standard that doesn't have to and shouldn't apply to everybody. So the National Sleep Foundation guidelines for this are that most adults will need somewhere between seven and nine hours a night. That's a pretty big range. But if you dig into those guidelines a little bit deeper, they also say that for some adults, anywhere between five hours a night and 11 hours may be appropriate. Which is a huge range. Yeah. Now, the chances of you being a five-hour person are slim. So for all the people out there who are actually the eight-hour person trying to force themselves to be a five-hour person because they want to be more productive or whatever else, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. not going to go well for you. And that's not the message that I'm trying to put out there. But while we all know, or mo- I think most of us by now know how bad it is if you don't get enough sleep, we very rarely talk about what happens in the other direction. And so if you're, let's say, a six-hour person, and you're trying to force yourself to get eight hours because you keep hearing that you know that's the recommended amount of sleep for everyone, and you're doomed if you don't get enough of it, if you try to force yourself to get more sleep than you need, you will end up giving yourself insomnia. Because hmm. the more time we spend awake and frustrated in bed, the more our brain starts to associate bed with wakefulness and worry. And soon your bed becomes a cue for wakefulness and worry instead of becoming a cue for sleep. So I I most quickly identify this. One of the telltale signs of this is when you're dozing off on the couch and you immediately get up and go to bed and suddenly you're wide awake and your mind is racing. Mm -hmm. I used to think that I was getting a second wind somehow in the walk from the couch to the bed which are like 10 feet apart because I live in a New York City apartment. But now I know that it was actually this thing called conditioned arousal, which is my brain had learned that bed is where we stay awake and worry. And so as soon as I got into bed, Uh I suddenly felt energized instead of winding down. Mm. And the same with my bedtime routine. Every piece of my bedtime routine, instead of becoming a cue to wind down a little bit more and a little bit more, which is why we always hear the benefits of a bedtime routine, for me, it was doing the opposite. And for the typical you know, insomniac, it does the opposite. You're, all of those things start to become a cue to stay awake and worry. And so if you're going to address that problem, if that is the thing that's keeping you uh, awake, you have to address that. And I think so many of us make the mistake of addressing all these other things. We try the teas and we put lavender oil on our pillow and we stop doing anything else in our bedrooms besides sleep and sex. And we swear off all of our screens and we give up our caffeine, but we never address the actual thing that's keeping us awake, which is this conditioned arousal. And so another thing I try to hammer home in the book is to try to start, pull on the right thread to start rather than, you know, firing up all of your engines and exhausting all of this effort on sleep. Let's try first. The key is to pinpoint the problem, and then we can try the solutions to address that main cause of your sleep problems. And once that starts getting better, then you can start trying to fine-tune by adding these other little things here and there. But if you exhaust all your effort in trying to make your bedroom this perfect sleep oasis and giving up all these other things that bring you pleasure but you think will hurt your sleep, you often end up doing more harm than good. Again, if insomnia is the thing that's your problem and not something like sleep apnea. So will you take us through your routine? 
Yeah. You know, my routine now is pretty basic. Um, uh, there are kind of two different, uh, I think, answers there. One is the routine that I was in when I was addressing my very severe insomnia and circadian rhythm disorders. And there's my routine now. And they're different because once you start getting better, you find a lot of these things, you don't need to do them forever. Mm. Um, and so right now I wake up in the morning. I try to make sure I get exposed to bright light because I am a natural night owl who now wakes up not as early as I used to, but I wake up at around 6.30 in the morning every morning. So I wake up at that time, no matter what, even though I'm on maternity leave right now. And even when I'm working, even on the weekends, I wake up at that time, no matter what, for among other reasons, I have a toddler who will wake me up if I don't. Right. So he kind of helps keep me on the steady there. And just that idea of waking up at approximately the same time every day will help kind of establish your body clock on a more, um, steady schedule. I expo- get myself exposed to bright light in the morning to kind of help my circadian rhythm do that. And I reduce the amount of light I'm exposed to at night, again, to help me start get feeling sleepy earlier in the day than I did before. I'm trying to think of what else I do that's kind of static. I will enjoy screen time at night, but I always reduce the brightness and the blue light levels. If I'm on my phone, I'll put my phone on grayscale to try to prevent me from you know getting kind of sucked into that rabbit hole that I was describing. Um, and if we're watching TV, I just don't have all the other lights on in the house at the same time. You know, I don't live in a cave or anything, but I try to reduce unnecessary light exposure at night to help my circadian rhythm as well. And one of the techniques that helped me tremendously when I was battling insomnia was something called constructive worry, which I sometimes just call a worry list or a brain dump. And it's, you take a notebook, you divide a page down the center, and on the left-hand side, you write down anything that's on your mind. And on the right-hand side, you then write down the very next step toward resolving that issue. You don't even need to know the ultimate solution, just the very next step to kind of push it along in the right direction. It only takes a few minutes to do, but it works wonders because by giving your brain this place, this opportunity to process your thoughts and feelings from the day, you remove the need to do it when your head hits the pillow in bed. And when you do that enough, your brain starts to form a new association that this is where we stay awake and worry, not when my head hits the pillow. And a lot of the reason why we get repetitive thoughts at night that keep us awake is just a memory thing. Our brain's just trying to remember to deal with that thing. So once you write it down on the page, that reminder is no longer necessary. And finally, it gets your brain in this mode of thinking of solutions rather than just ruminating on problems, which many of us do when we're in that sort of insomnia loop laying in bed wide awake. And I was very skeptical when I first read about this because I was thinking at the time, you know, Ambien doesn't put me to sleep, but this notebook thing is going to. Mm -hmm. But it really, really helped me for all of the reasons I just stated. And I found I only needed to do it for two weeks before my brain just kind of got the memo. And then when I started researching the book and asking clinicians about this, they also touted its benefits very highly and said the general recommendation they give is two to three weeks. And for most people, your brain just kind of starts doing it automatically. So you don't need the notebook anymore. And I do though, still keep the notebook in my nightstand. And so if I am having a particularly stressful day, or if I wake up in the middle of the night and I feel like my mind is racing, I'll just step out and I'll do this exercise and just write in the notebook for a few minutes. And I really then feel like it just turns the temperature down on the whole thing. And almost every single time I can then go back to bed and drift off again. But sometimes the best laid plans (laughs) go awry when we have young children. That throws us all off too, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think 
for me, again, since worry was such a big part of what was keeping me awake after so many years of having a circadian rhythm disorder, I spent so much time awake and frustrated in bed because of that. And then I ended up with very severe insomnia as well. Uh, what I've learned is, again, like you said, best laid plans. We cannot always ensure that we're going to get a perfect night's sleep. And we don't have to. Our body, despite the overall conversation about how terrible we do if we don't get enough sleep, our body is equipped to deal with short stints of sleep deprivation. And there's research to show that and lots of personal anecdotes to show that as well. So the best thing you can do is those scenarios is try not to worry about it too much. Carry on as best as you can. If you're the type of person who can take a nap during the day and not have it hurt your nighttime sleep, then go for it. You know, if you can sleep in a little bit or go to bed a little bit earlier, again, without hurting your ability to sleep at night, go for it. And if any of those things do hurt your ability to sleep at night, then just power through for the day and realize that you'll be fine. Your body is equipped to handle that. And all whatever sleep deprivation you have from the night before is going to build your sleep drive up nice and high. So that night you will fall asleep faster. You will sleep more deeply and your sleep quality will be even higher. Our body will automatically put us into deep sleep and REM sleep and prioritize that over the normal amount of light sleep we would normally get in a night in order to make up for that sleep loss. So all you don't have to jump through hoops to try to make up for that. If you don't feel like it's happening easily for you, just go back to your normal schedule and just try go back to going back to sleeping normally and your body will naturally do that repair work for you. You know, ambient notwithstanding, I have a nice size bottle in my bathroom of melatonin. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about taking things or smoking a joint before you go to bed? I think that anybody who is taking any substance on a regular basis for the sole purpose of trying to help their sleep should be doing so under the guidance of a sleep specialist. And I specifically say sleep specialist and not just a primary care physician, because sadly, most doctors spend, most medical schools spend very, very little time. The average is two hours on sleep. And so most of our doctors are, are not equipped through no fault of their own to treat and identify sleep disorders. And so if you are regularly having to take a substance in order to fall asleep or stay asleep, something is wrong. And chances are that something can be addressed without a substance. And chances are that substance is not actually fixing the problem, but just putting a Band-Aid on it Band -Aid, and potentially yeah. making it worse. Mm. I don't feel very strongly about many things. And I think everybody has to make their own personal choices and what's best for them. But, but I do think that if you are taking something regularly in order to sleep, you should consult a sleep specialist and they can help then craft whether you're using that substance thoughtfully and whether it's a good move for you or whether there's something else that is better suited to address your issue. So I must ask you, how many hours of sleep do you get a night? Somewhere usually between six and a half and seven, seven and a half. You mm -hmm. know, we don't, we all generally tend to fall into a range, but something else I learned in researching this book is you're not going to need the same exact amount every night. You know, if you have a, a rough night the night before, you might need a little bit more the next night. If you had a big exertive day and you did a lot of exercise that day, you might need a little bit more sleep. You know, lots of things can add or subtract from your sleep need. But I find that my range is somewhere usually between six and a half to seven hours. I really learned a lot. And from somebody who's had her issues sleeping, what a public service the sleep fix is. 
it felt a lot like a duty after a while. When I, I knew I felt my own frustrations with some of the myths and misconceptions that are out there. But when I started talking to all of these sleep clinicians and researchers who expressed their own frustrations and how badly they've been trying to get this message out there and felt like nobody would listen to them, uh, I felt that I needed to because I think it genuinely will help a lot of people. And I want to make clear that this book, even though a lot of what I just talked about is insomnia, because that's my issue, it's not just for insomniacs. There are lots of other things that can keep you awake that require very different solutions. And I think one of the overlying myths, in addition to the we all need eight hours thing, is that you know if you follow any one list of top sleep tips and if you do them all correctly, then you will sleep well. And then if you don't, then it's your fault somehow. And that's not the case. The top sleep tips for each person is going to be individual, not only right, to that person very. and their personal makeup, but mm-hmm. very much individual to what the problem is that's keeping them awake. Mm-hmm. And so if you're someone who has trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, you know, that's one thing. But there are lots of people out there who have no problems. At least they don't think falling asleep or staying asleep. They go to bed at night. They fall asleep fine. They wake up in the morning. They feel like they got a full night, but they feel sleepy all day. They're the, you know, the person who dozes off in the waiting room or turns on the TV in the middle of the day and will just, you know, take a little cat nap. Mm -hmm. If you are regularly feeling sleepy during the day, that is also a problem. Even if you think you sleep fine at night, that's a sign that something is interrupting your sleep throughout the night that you may not be aware of. And it's time to get that checked out. And so I really wrote this book for anybody who doesn't get enough sleep, whether they know it or not, for reasons other than they just don't spend enough time in bed. Because I think many of us have been led to believe that if we don't get enough sleep, it's because we have terrible sleep habits and we're not prioritizing our sleep enough. And for a lot of us, that's not the issue. Right. And so I wrote the book for the rest of us. <laughs> and uh, and I hope that it will help people. Well, listen, we're grateful that you did. The fact that you are a singer, do you ever fall asleep listening to music? This is actually a fun fact that I learned in the research. Um, I have done it before, but not very often. And what I learned is that Music is an excellent sleep tool for most people, but not so much for musicians because we listen to music differently. We listen to music from a very analytical perspective. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. for me, for example, having been a former acapella singer, I often listen to like the arrangement of music, the rhythm, the different melodies that are going on and how that piece of music comes together. And so for those of us who do that, music is puts our brain kind of into work mode and analytical mode rather than the unwind and unplug mode. Um, So it's an excellent tool and has been shown in some research to turn severe insomniacs into mild insomniacs. If you use it at the same time, every night, the same playlist Um, for an extended period of time, it gets better. The benefits get better over time, but for musicians, not so much. You'll have to rely on something else. Well, a lot to process, but really good stuff. <laughs> I was wide awake during this conversation. It was fascinating. The name of Diane's book, The Sleep Fix, Practical, Proven, and Surprising Solutions for Insomnia, Snoring, Shift Work, and More. It was a real pleasure to meet and get to know you. And thank you so much for this conversation, Diane, and for helping us <laughs> cope. This is the book that should be on our nightstand. Sandy, I, I so appreciate it. I appreciate you helping me get the message out there. And I want anyone out there with sleep problems to know that they don't just have to live with that. You know, get the book, see a sleep specialist. There are answers. Perfect. Thank you so much. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.